Hi everyone, it's Bud, and welcome to another episode of Before the Cheering Started, a podcast all about the journey to success and professional fulfillment, the early years, the doubt, the obstacles overcome, and the passion to push forward. This is part two of my conversation with the acclaimed author and writer and columnist for the New York Times, Dan Barry. In part one, we discussed the working class Irish Catholic home he grew up in on Long Island, and how after college, and even after getting a graduate degree, he dug ditches during the day, while at night wrote to hundreds of newspapers looking for a job. And he landed one at a small paper in Connecticut. When you get your first job in Connecticut, a newspaper in, in Connecticut, is there a sense of, and, and your early time there, is there a sense of, I'm doing it, and, and this is what I wanted to do, and I, I, I'm, I'm confident, or is there doubt, can I do this? Oh, profound doubt. I, I would say, Bud, there's, there's doubt even to this day. Now, I've been doing this for 40 years. Um, when, uh, when there's a deadline or when I am facing the blank screen about to try and write a story, uh, I have profound doubt that I can pull it off. I, can, I, I, I fear that I'm not up to it, that I'll forget how to do this. So that has never gone away. Um, my first full-time newspaper job uh, was at the Manchester Journal Inquirer. And what had happened was he was uh, the editor, Chris Powell, was one of the few people who responded to my many, many cover letters that I had been banging out of my basement. And he said, I don't have a job, but if you're in the area, uh, stop by. And of course, I said, well, that's so weird. I'm going to be in Manchester, Connecticut <laughs> uh, uh, in a couple of days. Uh, where is that again? And it was it, it, it's uh, it's outside of Hartford, Connecticut, and so I, I I went up there, and the the interview, such as it was, was between Chris Powell and his dog, which was a um, a, uh, a, a Scotch Terrier, a Scottish Terrier, and its name was Terry, and and it was clear that if Terry didn't like me, I wasn't getting a job ever. And at one point, Powell left the room, and it was just and Terry was sitting on a chair. And I was sitting on a chair and we're facing each other and Powell leaves the room. It's just Terry and me looking at each other. And I'm trying to figure out how to prove to Terry that I'm worthy of this place. So the dog <laughs> didn't go after me. They didn't like, he, he, Powell didn't come back into the room and find Terry, you know, tearing my mm -hmm. pants apart or anything. So I, I, I got the job. But when I got the job, uh, I was, I, I remember vividly, how frightened I was that I would never be able to write on deadline because it was an afternoon newspaper, which meant that the deadlines were in the morning. And uh, I, I thought I, I'm never going to be able to do this. I'm never going to be able to get into the newsroom at 7 a.m. and have a completed story by 9 a.m. Uh, even now, the idea makes my hands perspire. Like, how do you do that? How do you make sense of an event in less than two hours between seven and nine in the morning. But I did it. And, and after I did it a couple of times, that was the moment when I said, okay, I, I can do this. I can do this. You talk about making sense of an event or a moment. How many years in were you into your career when you had to cover the murder of your colleague in Connecticut? And what was the lesson drawn from that experience? Sure. Um, so I was at the Journal Inquirer from 1983 to 1987. 
And um, right at the end of 1987, I was uh, about to go to the Providence Journal in Rhode Island. And, and the Providence Journal was a huge step up from the Journal Inquirer, a very, very good newspaper. And while I was negotiating with the Providence Journal or praying that they would hire me, uh, a colleague of mine named Carol Lezinski uh, was murdered in her apartment in, in Hartford. And so the Journal Inquirer, you know, fairly small staff of maybe 20, 25 uh, reporters and editors were devastated. We were devastated. Uh, it was very, very familial. Okay. It was such a small newsroom. We all knew one another. We were all roughly the same age. We all had the same aspirations. And now here was one of us who was brutally murdered in her home. And so uh, we banded together and we tried to <laughs> find the killer. And that's a, it sounds absurd even now to say that, but that's what you think uh, when something like this happens to someone in your family, effectively, your extended family. And so we canvassed the neighborhood. We had leaflets. We, we knocked on every door. And I was one of the lead reporters and writing the lead stories. And um, I felt uh, an obligation or a responsibility. And I think in retrospect, you know, maybe uh, an outsized sense of self. Um, oh, I, you know, this guy, we're going to find him and I'm going to find him. And you know, of course I didn't find him. Of course we didn't find him. Ultimately, a guy was charged and, and tried a couple of times, but it was a flawed case and I don't think he was convicted. I think technically the, the, the murder of Kara remains, you know, unsolved. Um, and I, I, I guess what I took from that was um, that reporters uh, do not have subpoena power. And uh, we are going to come across stories that do not have clean endings. Some things, the endings are that there is no end. And, um, and that was the case with Kara, and that's, that was the case with me. There's no, no heroism involved, just pain and a little bit of self-delusion and uh, reflection. You moved on to the newspaper in Providence and did great work there. I'm curious, during those years, is the dream of working for a New York paper still there? Or did you have some sense of, okay, I'm working at a really good newspaper. If this is what it's to be, this is fine. And uh, put what I assume was an ambition to work at a New York paper. Maybe that's a presumption I shouldn't make. Uh, do you kind of put that to bed or is it always still kind of there? No, I, I, I try, as I said earlier, I tried to become a news clerk at the New York Times and um, that did not go well. Um, uh, as on my way to the interview, uh, someone hit me with a bottle of cold 45 malt liquor and it was at, uh, the interview was at 9.30 or 10 and, and this guy hit me in the chest at about, you know, 10 minutes before my interview. And so when I went to the interview, um, I, I, I smell like I just come out of McCann's bar uh, to like uh, the, uh, to suggest that I had needed a pick me up before going into the interview. And I never received like a, a thank you for coming in or or anything like that. It was as though it never happened. So uh, 
many years later, I'm at the Providence Journal, and I, I, I would apply to the New York Times and send clips. And sometimes I'd get a response, a curt response, and sometimes no response. And at one point, I was so frustrated, I sent a, a cover letter to the Metropolitan Editor, and it, it began by saying, um, Dear Mr. Boyd, I know that the New York Times has a rich history in nepotism. Uh, I have a cousin <laughs> who works at the printing um, operations in Long Island City, if that helps. Um, <laughs> so Boyd did not... Always, go, always good to go in with that positive yeah, spirit. And, uh, for, for some reason, uh, that did not, uh, uh, did not uh, result in a response. I don't know why. <laughs> and so what happened was no accounting for no accounting for no, taste is my father. Humor, you know. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so I, I always wanted to come back to New York, and and the idea of working at the New York Times uh, was probably a pipe dream. But you know, I I would pursue it. Then after that, I stopped. I stopped uh, applying out of some <laughs> some sense of. Uh, sense of self that, you know, okay, I don't want to debase myself anymore. Uh, and then uh, a wonderful New York Times writer named Michael Weinrich came to the Providence Journal to talk about writing. And he and I hit it off. And then he went back to the New York Times. And um, a colleague of mine at the Providence Journal did get hired at the New York Times. And uh, he called me up after a couple of months and he said, hey, Weinrich wants to know why he never heard from you. Uh, why haven't you applied? And so I, I put together some clips and applied once more. And um, I'd written a story about uh, the son of, an, of a mobster who was a boxer. And I structured the story such that you wouldn't know whether the, this, this son, this, this boxer who was the son of a mobster, won the fight until the last paragraph or two. And uh, Weinrip was reading it. And he missed his train stop. And so he went in the next day and told Joe Lelleville, the executive editor. And then I was invited back for, I was invited for the first time actually for an interview process and, and uh, luckily was hired. So. Uh, I would say luck probably didn't have oh, much to do with a it. lot. It had a lot. Cause well, I think of all fortune, time. talent, a lot of things that go into it. Mostly, on the way there, hopefully steering clear of anyone who might have a beverage in yeah, their hand. Right, right. I made sure not to meet anyone with a cold 45 on my way to that interview. Yeah. So, yeah. You wrote eloquently about your cancer diagnosis in 1999 in your memoir, which is a must read for anybody who has not read it. I seem to recall a story with another one of uh, another New York journalistic icon, Jimmy Breslin and a walk in Central Park yeah. during the course of that experience. How did that come about? You know, obviously I grew up reading Jimmy Breslin. He would be he would be my hero. If I had a hero, it would be uh, Mickey Mantle and Breslin, okay? Uh, and so um, when I was in New York, I began writing the About New York column, which was a great, great gift to me. And I can't remember how it happened, um, but suddenly I get a call. And, and so what had, what had happened, Bud, was I had a recurrence of cancer. So I had cancer in 1999, 
And then in 2004, I had uh, cancer again. And this time it was cancer of the esophagus. It was quite serious. Both of them were quite serious. And so I don't know how Breslin found out. I, I, I can't recall, but uh, he called me up and he said, uh, when are you going to that place? Uh, I said, oh, what do you mean, Mr. Breslin? He said, that place, when are you going to that place over there on the east side? And uh, I figured out he was talking about Sloan Kettering. And I said, well, actually, I have to go. I have to go on uh, Friday. Um, okay, I'll go with you. Uh, what are you talking about? I'll meet you. All right. Uh, meet me at 72nd and Broadway and we'll walk over. Like, I don't even know this guy. Okay, but I did know I did know that he had suffered loss. He had suffered the loss of his wife, Rosemary, and uh, and and his daughter had died at Sloan Kettering. And he was very much connected to Sloan Kettering and to the cancer journey, sadly. And so someone must have told him. And so as gruff and as antisocial as difficult as he was famously, he had a huge, huge heart and he connected with people when they were in distress. And so I know what he looks like. He doesn't know what I look like. And so I'm at 72nd and Broadway and I'm just waiting and I'm watching, waiting to see my hero walk by and there he is. And he's, he's bouncing along. He's, he's shorter than I thought. And I went up to him and I said, uh, hi, Mr. Breslin, I'm Dan Barry. He said, Jimmy, let's go like that. So then we, we start walking east to Sloan Kettering. And I don't know this guy other than his writing. And it was as though I'd known him for 20 years. And he started talking about John Gotti. And he started talking about old boxers. And he, they were hilarious stories. And he was, he, he was dropping so many F-bombs that it was almost rhythmic. It was, it was a thing of beauty. And then before I know it, I'm in front of Sloan Kettering and, uh, and he had made that journey there. It's a, it's a fairly uh, daunting journey just to walk to Sloan Kettering. I suddenly I'm there. And uh, he says, when, when's your wife getting here? Where the fuck is she? And I, I said, well, she's coming. She'll be here. She should be here and everything like that. He keeps dropping these F-bombs. And a guy came up to him and said, you're Jimmy Breslin. And Breslin said, yeah, what of it? Yeah, so? <laughs> scared the guy. And the guy went like, whoa. And he walked away. And Breslin clearly enjoyed that. And he said, you see that? Did you see that? And then as soon as my wife got there, her name is Mary Trinity. As soon as Mary got there, Breslin never cursed again. Okay. So I said, Jimmy, thanks so much for, for walking me over. This is really meaningful uh, thank you. He says, no, I'll go in with you. I said, what are you talking? You go in with me. <laughs> so he comes in with Mary and me. I check in. Uh, I have to get into a Johnny. I have to go into this little room and get into a Johnny. And then they, they say, when you're finished with the, getting into your Johnny, go into the side room. So I go into the side room and it's only about, you know, four feet by eight feet. And there's my wife and there's Jimmy Breslin. So now I'm with my hero. <laughs> Uh, and I'm in a Johnny, you know, and with those those stupid paper shoes. So it's Mary, me, 
in my Johnny and paper slippers and Jimmy Breslin. <laughs> and, uh, and he kept talking. A nurse would come in. He was, he was telling stories, all of them clean, uh, but hilarious. Um, and then the gurney comes up where I have to get onto the gurney. And the joke is I made room for him, you know, but I remember getting up to the gurney and saying goodbye to my wife, but also saying goodbye to Jimmy Breslin. And uh, then the next day, so, you know, I, I went, underwent the procedure. It wasn't good news. And the next day was Friday and I was supposed to write for Saturday. And he called me up and he said, what do you got for tomorrow? I said, Jimmy, I thought I, I, I thought I'd take the day off. You know, it was a, duff, a tough day yesterday, and he wouldn't hear it. He said, "What? What?" I said, I, "I don't even know where to begin. I can't think of anything to write." He goes, "That's." He said, "Look around. Look on the pavement. There's stories everywhere. Write goodbye." That's what he did, and he hung up. And I felt this moral obligation to write something, and I wrote an essay. Um, a column rather for the next day. And it was about that walk. I didn't name Breslin. Uh, I, I just said it was like when you're going through something like this, you were in your own movie. And that was my movie. My movie was going across the park to, you know, a, an upsetting uh, appointment with uh, and, and, and seeing the world fresh, you know, new, as though you might not see it again. But you paid him back in a way, uh, I believe it was after Jimmy died, there was an event for him at NYU and you spoke and you recounted some of that story. And you said at the end, and you talked about how he would use the word beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. beautiful. how you said, giving yourself short shrift, you said the column that you wrote that day yeah. was forgettable the memory or the inspiration from that walk. Yeah. Beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I also, and that uh, was a perfect yeah. moment. I, I also had the honor of writing his obituary for the times and uh, yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Beautiful. And he would use it sarcastically though. Like, you know, Hugh Carey and his red hair. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> you wrote eloquently. You continue to write eloquently, but you wrote eloquently in the About New York column and then the columns that make up the wonderful book, This Land. And I'm curious, during those trips and those those pieces that take you all over the country, far from the Long Island of your youth, is part of that, are you trying to connect the families that you wrote about and the people that you wrote about to the people that you saw on your block growing up? Is there some thread there? You know, I guess, right. I, I did feel a little bit like uh, an ambassador from lower, lower middle-class Long Island, you know, uh, presenting myself to the rest of the country, but then also reporting back to my my uh, comrades on West 23rd Street in Deer Park. Um, I, do, I do think that's true, but I also think that um, I, would, I would try to honor my parents and the people on the block, you know, the, the, the guy who drove a, a Pector's uh, bread truck or the guy who worked at Grumman or the woman who, who was a nurse at Good Samaritan 
I would try to connect uh, with them uh, or honor them by telling stories of average people in Idaho or Mississippi or Illinois. And what I would do is I would mostly stay away from the cities and I would mostly stay away from public officials. And I would tell of the travails and sometimes the triumphs of just people who had never been uh, the subject of a newspaper article before. And uh, that was a great uh, privilege of mine to do that. And, and I would always keep that in mind. I would also, also try with language to figure out how to connect and not to conde- ever be perceived as condescending trying to meet people where they are, both in my reporting, but then also in the writing of it. There's this uh, Timesian voice that is uh, somewhat uh, overblown, but there was a time, especially when you and I were younger, that the New York Times could sound like, to be sure, that notwithstanding, um, words that no one would ever speak and also come with this kind of tinny sense of authority. And um, I didn't want to do that. And so uh, the stories that I would write, I would want to be read on West 23rd Street. Mm-hmm. In, in that sense, it's, it's striking me that you kind of invoke your work, whether knowingly or consciously or not. Both of you, two of your heroes, Breslin and Hamill, Hamill, the notion of even... Even he would say when he was writing for a tabloid, they were reading a newspaper. I'm not going to dumb it down. It's smart. It should be smart. And of course, Breslin, when you talk about telling the story of people who who wouldn't ordinarily be in the newspaper, Breslin made his bones essentially with the JFK column about the grave digger while everybody else, you know, a part of that sports thing, the the more interesting stories in the losing locker room and going away from the limelight. And, And you've carried that tradition Right, right. Uh, uh, It's also Murray Kempton, um, you know, talking, you know, Bobby Thompson hits the the shot heard around the world 1951 for the New York Giants. Well, everyone's going to go to his locker. Let's go to Ralph Branca's locker and in the Brooklyn Mm -hmm. uh, uh, locker room. And I think Hamill's right. Uh, You know, you you can use simple language. in a way that can uh, aspire toward literature. Do you know what I mean? And, and I think that's clearly what Hamill did. It's absolutely what Breslin did. Very, very literate, um, what he did. Very, it, it, that is literature at its best um, in journalism. It's journalistic literature, I would say. And so that's what I would aspire to. And there's a way for that to connect with everyone. You've aspired to it and you've achieved it. I don't it. know about that. I don't know. Wait until the next. That's, that's not your call. call. That that's the. I'll call you when I'm looking at my reader's uh, call. monitor in a couple of days and figure well, the, out what to begin with. Again, so many stories and lessons from those early years. Do you think any of those lessons apply and have a tangible effect on the work that you continue to do today? The lessons from those early years, growing up in Long Island at St. Bonaventure, maybe the first newspaper job. I do. I do. I think that. 
you know, I wrote a story last year about um, laborers at a, at a Bronx construction site who died. They were, un, they were non-union laborers and they died because of construction uh, accidents. Two of them were undocumented. And I think that they, uh, you know, they represent the people who are building and reinventing New York City, yet, yet they can sometimes... Um, seem almost invisible you know they they you know you can just you know they're not important you you look past them and i think that by recognizing them and slowing it down with them and hearing their stories and their travails i'm talking about in particular in that case a construction worker who survived um, a horrible accident that killed his colleague uh, you know uh just that I think that comes from uh, my parents and from uh, Deer Park. It comes from recognizing the 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 operas that uh, each of us um, is living. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and operas not always sad. You know, how about some of them are light operas or operettas. Uh, but but to understand that there are epics in each of us and uh, no matter our status in, in, in life and that it's my responsibility to sit there and listen and to understand and and share it with others. You do a beautiful job of doing it. Right, thank you, bud. Nothing but net, I believe the expression <laughs> is. Dan Barry, he says he's working on a project that looks at mercy, justice, and forgiveness through the prism of the state pardon system. Before the Cheering Started is a production of June 14th Productions and Gemini 13 Productions. This episode was created and written by me. Guitar playing, that's me as well. No extra charge. I'm Bud Mishkin, and this is Before the Cheering Started. Thanks for joining us on The Journey. Mm-hmm.